Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome, everyone, to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Carlos Alcaraz is Wimbledon champion in 2023. He wins his second major. He defeats Novak Djokovic in a excellent five-set final. Let us start with some contextualization of what is a, a monumental result. Uh, really would have been either way in, in a lot of ways, but uh, certainly this way is uh, a, a breaking of the norm. In fact, let me put it this way. The win that Carlos Alcaraz achieved on Sunday, that's the win that doesn't happen. That is the, the result that we have not seen at all for the last 18 years. I lied. We've seen it once. A young player. And when I say young, let's say you got to be under 23. A young player beating one of the big three in a major final. We've seen it once. Del Potro, U.S. Open, 2009. At the time, we knew that was kind of a remarkable win, but I feel like now you look back and that title is more impressive from Del Potro. It aged incredibly well because we went over a decade after that and nobody ever did it again. Now, you know, you might be thinking, what about this one? What about that one? I don't know. Medvedev, U.S. Open. 2021, 25 years old. It's pretty different than 20, which is Carlos Alcaraz's age. You can go back to 2005 if you want to go that, back that far. Marit Safin, he was 25 as well. I'm telling you, it, it just, it, it hasn't happened. It doesn't happen. Alcaraz did it. And th there were even more factors that break trends like this was a rule-breaking win in other ways as well I mean first let's let's look at all of it here Djokovic at Wimbledon hadn't lost a completed match since 2016 four straight titles 45 consecutive wins on center court last time he lost on center court was against Andy Murray in the 2013 final all right let's look at Djokovic in major finals Won 11 out of the last 13. Let's look at Novak in fifth sets. He had won four straight major finals in, in five sets, right? 
Uh, five and two overall in five setter major finals. Won his last eight straight five setters in general. Last loss was team 2019. At Wimbledon, he was 10 in one lifetime. With his last loss, five setter at Wimbledon, coming in 2006 when he was a teenager. Djokovic at Wimbledon in a major final in a fifth set against a young player. I, I mean, it. It's it's incredible, it's incredible. First non-big four player to win Wimbledon since 2002. So look, I guess here's the point I'm trying to make. Uh, anyone who's had an open mind about trusting the eye test with Alcaraz has understood that he is generational. And I've been saying for a long time now that he's different, that he's special, that he's not like the rest. Uh, but there is a, a segment out there, and I'm I'm not getting on that segment. It, it's okay. There's a segment out there that wanted evidence before they could buy in to the idea that Alcaraz is not like the rest. That he's different, that he's generational. And now, even those folks who have held out for the evidence, they wanted the hard proof. Now they have it. Now they have it because what Alcaraz did has not been done. Beats Djokovic, five-set Wimbledon final at 20 years old. Case closed. He's different from the rest. Uh, he's a little bit different from Del Potro even because, you know, Delpo, what, he finished 2009, world number five, got up to three in the world. Obviously, this is Alcaraz's second. That was Del Potro's first. All right, but let's move on to the match. Um I'm going to kind of come around, and you'll understand where I'm going with this, but ju just bear with me for a second. Djokovic, after the match, said that that he thinks Alcaraz is indeed a combination, that he has elements of Roger, Rafa, and myself, and Novak. He said he's basically got the best of all three worlds. And I think when Novak said that, first of all, it's an unbelievable compliment to Carlitos. But I think he was kind of talking about on-court attributes, you know, play style, mental components, physical components, uh, technique he even talked a little bit about with the two-hander and the open stance sliding backhand. But what I was thinking about watching the match and, and what I kind of think Alcaraz really, really is in terms of continuing what the, the big three created it's a matter of embracing and excelling in the process of improving. And that's always what I admired the big three most for. Always what I felt like made them most special is that uh, they all kind of did that together. The whole, you know, aggressively, uh, no stone unturned, attention to detail, get better, get better, get better, advance, 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 loving that process and just... Iron sharpening iron. And what we just saw in the last month is that only Djokovic to Alcaraz. In other words, how I really kind of feel about this is that Alcaraz, what was so amazing about this is Alcaraz needed that experience at Roland Garros 
which was an embarrassing experience, which was a, a experience of physical failure. He needed that in order to do what he did today. One doesn't happen without the other because he needed to learn. And that's kind of what I've always admired in the, what, the, the very young career of Carlos Alcaraz already is that it's very clear that he learns ridiculously fast. And this was evidence because what he really needed to do when we talk about adjustments from that match to this match is uh, he needed to figure things out mentally. And he needed to go from, and this is a tough task, he needed to go from cripplingly nervous, he was cripplingly nervous in Paris, to calm enough to win. And that's a big leap. How did he do it? We can't crawl into his brain. It's impossible. But his words coming into the match do give us a little bit of insight. So I want to talk about a couple of the things that he said. He described what he was, you know, was intending to do, what he wanted to do as so. Quote, I try to pull out all the nerves, try to enjoy that moment, because probably in the semifinal at the French Open, I didn't enjoy it all in the first set. He went on to say, quote, Probably this is going to be the best moment of my life. Probably. Playing a final here in Wimbledon is something that I dreamed about when I started playing tennis. Probably going to be the best moment of my life before he plays the match. That's, that's strong. So what do I read in those quotes? Enjoy the moment. I'm going to try to enjoy the moment and it's probably going to be the best day of my life. To me, that is someone who is trying to be process-based versus result-based. Result-based is the enemy. Process-based is what we want. If you detach yourself from the outcome and you focus on enjoyment, which is exactly what Alcaraz was putting out into the world, that, okay, I'm going to actually enjoy this no matter what happens, right? Detach from the outcome. It's going to be the best day of my life. Win, lose, doesn't matter. That's what it's going to be. Enjoy the moment. If you can detach from, your, from the outcome, there's suddenly nothing to get nervous about. Everybody wants to be process-based and not results-based, right? That is the holy grail. That is how you relieve yourself of the anxiety that makes you play worse tennis. And everybody wants to achieve this. But just like a tactic on court, it, it's not easy. Just because you want to do it doesn't mean you are going to execute that, again, mental tactic successfully. I think a couple things need to be true. I think you need to love the game truly. And I also think that you need to have practice achieving that mindset. I don't think you can just flip a switch for a major final and get in that headspace. I think you need to have experience accessing that headspace and you need to be somebody who's often in that headspace in order to, in such a big moment, to actually get there. And it seems like Alcaraz actually got there because there were zero signs of tension at any point. And that was the biggest thing that I got wrong in my preview. The biggest thing I got wrong was thinking that Alcaraz would, and, and I knew he'd improve his nerve management because I believed him when I said, look, I, when he said, I'm not going to cramp this time, I understand what happened there, and I'm going to fix it, and I'm going to make it better, and I know what I got to do, and here's what I'm going to focus on. And 
Juan Carlos Ferrero has been there before, and that's a great guiding uh, force. He's been working with a psychologist who we talked about since the start of 2020. And he said, I'm going to talk to that psychologist. and We're going to figure this out. And I believed it would get better, but I did believe it would also fall short. His nerve management would fall short of being great. And that's where he exceeded expectations because they were great. So with that, let's talk about this fifth set. When those, when all that nerve management uh, came into play and was so, so impressive. When, when I talk about the fifth set, uh, I had to kind of first think about what do I focus on? What do I emphasize, right? And that's always kind of what I'm looking for when I'm watching a tennis match. What are the patterns? What are the things happening often? What are the outcomes that are taking up a larger slice of the, the pie chart of total points? I'm always kind of looking for that, all right? It's, it's not quite as rigid and scientific as I just made it sound, but that's basically the kind of thing that I'm looking for. And I've talked about this in the past, but sometimes Alcaraz actually makes that pretty challenging for me because so many things are happening. So... Looking at this fifth set, we're going to focus on just that. How many things were happening? How many different things he was doing at an elite level? Because that was my takeaway here. It wasn't that, oh, Alcaraz was doing this and that's why he won. It's that Alcaraz was doing this, that, the other, and even more. That is the point. So let's go through this. And I'm going to go in a lot of depth on this fifth set uh, I, I hope that I can, you know, make it digestible as, as we kind of go through this. All right. But, uh, we're going to start with, uh, we're going to start with the love one game where Alcaraz is serving. Novak at this point just won the fourth set six, three, and he's broken Alcaraz's serve in, in two straight games, two straight Alcaraz service games have been breaks. And once again, uh, Novak with all the momentum it's going to apply a lot of pressure here. So I'm just going to go through um, the points that Alcaraz won in this game. And I'll tell you the score. At love 15, he had a forehand drop shot for a winner. At 15-30, he served and volleyed. He hit this sensational backhand drop volley winner where, you know, all of his momentum is going forward. Normally when players serve and volley, they hit the first volley deep so that they can get closer to the net. And then maybe they'll look to finish with the drop volley on the second. It's kind of hard to hit a drop, a great drop volley off the first because of your distance from the net. And because also because you're running kind of in all your momentum's going forward. And it's kind of hard to uh, have great feel when your body weight is moving forward. You have to deaden the pace of the ball. He did that beautifully at 1530. At 3040, it's break point. This is the only mistake of the game for Novak. This is the only point where he made a mistake. We're going to go back and talk about that mistake later in the analysis, not right now. So now with Deuce, Alcaraz is going to hit a serve plus forehand drop shot down the line winner. So another drop winner. And then add in game point. Great defense off of a, off of a very strong Djokovic backhand down the line return. Uh, it's kind of a, a wild, wacky point. Djokovic slips. He, he gets back up, um, 
And oh, you know what? I actually think that I'm um Am I thinking of the right point here? Forget the slip. Forget forget that I said that he slipped. Uh, this is a, that's a different point. Um, it's a forehand to forehand exchange, and Alcaraz drives the ball down the line for a winner. So it's forehand cross court, forehand down the line winner. That's the combination. So Alcaraz hits four winners in this game, in this crucial game that ultimately broke up Djokovic's momentum. One drive forehand down the line, two forehand drop shots, one backhand drop volley. The one point he didn't hit a winner off of was an amazing scramble, an amazing scramble that we're going to talk about later. Novak in this game made eight pretty good returns and made one error. All right? And that's pretty good. But, you know, you, you see what I'm starting to build here? In terms of the different ways he's winning points, we have a forehand drive, we have a backhand drop volley, we have two forehand drop shots. Let's go to the next game. In the next game, Alcaraz breaks serve. I thought his backhand slice was massive here. Massive. First point of this game, Alcaraz draws Novak inside the baseline, makes him lift up on a backhand, then attacks with his forehand to, to open up the court wide open. It ends up being a backhand winner to finish, but... The backhand he could have hit in his sleep. I could have hit a backhand winner. It was really the slice and then the aggressive forehand that did all the damage. Break point was also great use of the backhand slice. This was more uh, from a defensive position where he plays two slices in a row, stretched out, defending the backhand corner. Both of them stayed very low. Novak ends up hitting a forehand approach off the second one, and it sits up, sits up a little bit, you know? Um, Novak could have hit a better approach shot, but also it's the backhand slice staying low as well. And Alcaraz wallops a backhand down the line pass. So backhand slice, big part of this break of serve. A couple of other things though, you know, I think, uh, Alcaraz broke, uh, his pattern kind of on a running forehand down the line where it looked like he was going to go cross. Slightly mishit it, but it went in. It set up an easy volley. And at 30-all, Djokovic missed a plus-one forehand from the middle of the court. And this was the bad mistake by Novak in this game uh, at 2-1. At but what I will say about this game is uh, we also need to highlight Alcaraz's return. He made five. Novak made... And this was the break of serve in the fifth. The crucial break of serve in the fifth set. Novak made five of six first serves. Five of six first serves. How many free points? Zero. Not a single ace, not a single service winner. Uh, three Alcaraz returns were neutralizing. Three of them were attackable. So that's pretty good. And... Of the three attackable returns, Novak executed on his plus one twice to win the point. And on one of them, at 30-all, he missed it. But, you know, you get the reward for making that number of returns. That's where you get those, those mistakes that Alcaraz got at 30-all. So that's the break. Now, Alcaraz has to consolidate. He consolidates that break of serve to go up 4-1 with four swings of the racket, three service winners, one ace. By the way, for the match, Alcaraz out aces Novak, nine to two. 
Let's talk more about the serve. Let's talk about how on Alcaraz's next service game, he was down love 15 and he missed his first serve. So actually, let me differentiate the two because I, I told you about the consolidation of the break to go up 4-1. That was four first serves. Let's talk about the second serve. Because his next service game is down love 15. He has to hit a second serve. He goes 1-15-T, which basically guarantees himself a forehand. When he's on the ad side and he goes that hard down the tee, uh, it's really hard for Novak to time an inside-out forehand return off of that much pace to get it to Alcaraz's backhand. You know, so he pretty much has to hit it down the middle. He hits it slightly towards Alcaraz's backhand, but Carlitos uh, just kind of takes a step to his left and laces a forehand inside in that forces an error. Now it's 15-0. Uh, next service game, same thing. Love 15, second serve. And remember what he did what he did last time. And you better believe that Novak's computer brain remembers exactly what happened. 115 T on the last one. Next one, kick wide, 88 miles per hour. It jumps up high. Novak miss hits the backhand. You could not hit two more different second serves. And uh, how about? being love 15 second serve twice in a row and you never go down love 30. That's huge. Now let's talk about the game where he served out the match, 5-4. And remember our conversation about nerves and how they were non-existent for Alcaraz. Seemingly. Well, he goes down love 15 again. And by the way, this is like a recipe for disaster. You're going down love 15 to Novak on three straight service games to end this fifth set. But at love 15, forehand drop shot, forehand lob combo, perfection, beauty. 15 all, Alcaraz approaches with the forehand inside out. Djokovic hits a great backhand pass cross court. Really good pace, gets really low. He gets a really good angle. Alcaraz stretches out, so athletic, Drop volley winner on the backhand. He is so good at net. So good. And this was a great pass. And Alcaraz erased it. All right, it's 30 all. Service winner T. Uh, that's a change up location. Because on the deuce side, he was going mostly wide. So you go change up location, 130, hit a good spot you're in pretty good shape to get the service winner. And then um, on uh, on championship point, serve plus forehand cross court, force of the error. So that's kind of game by game, fifth set. And I hope that was effective. I hope that was effective in just painting a picture of how much Alcaraz did well. I probably didn't emphasize some of the defense enough, uh, but I can I can do that in a moment because that was also a big part of it. But again, how many different kinds of winners did we just talk about? Uh, we talked about first serve. We talked about second serve. We talked about backhand slice. We talked about forehand drop shot, forehand lob, forehand down the line. Like, this is what it took. We talked about great net play. Some big volleys. So, like, 
what was it for Alcaraz? It was everything. And that is the point. It would never sound like this. It would never look like this. Uh, not to pick on these guys, okay? Not to pick on these guys. It's just Djokovic's last two opponents. It would never look like this with Rublev or Sinner. Nothing remotely like this. The, the depth, the wide array of elite attributes aren't there. All right? And... Again, it's not to pick on those guys because it's really not there for almost anybody. It's an Alcaraz exception. Okay, um, with that said, I think the fifth set was important to key in on. Let's also talk about some some of the Djokovic mistakes here that could have changed the match. Um, and that starts with the second set. Tiebreak, Novak wins the first set 6-1. And he has set point in the second set tiebreak at 6-5 and he misses a backhand and then at 6-all he misses another backhand Novak described it really well I'm just gonna gonna quote him he said the backhands kind of let me down to be honest set point I missed the backhand he did play a backhand that was quite long in the court and had a little bit of a bad bounce but I should not have missed that shot just to kind of visualize it you know Novak was kind of hitting open stance because of the depth uh, was kind of having to lean backwards, and he, he hit the net on it. But it's a ball that he wasn't really going for much because of Alcaraz's depth, and you know he's just trying to trade it cross court. And Novak is right; he shouldn't have missed it. Six all, he says. Then six all again, another backhand from the middle of the court in the net. Just two very poor backhands. That's it. That's what Novak said. I thought the six all backhand was a lot worse. It was a lot more inexplicable. Uh, there was there was nothing about the backhand from the footwork to the incoming ball. Like there is just really nothing that could explain the miss to me. And then it was set point Alcaraz. And then Djokovic serve and volleyed. Same thing that Runa did, set point in the first set. Add side. It, it, it's set point late in a tie break and you serve and volley to Alcaraz's backhand and, and Carlitos hits that stretch backhand pass down the line. It was almost like an instant replay of the set point with Holger. And I criticized Runa. I criticized Holger for the decision. So I, I guess I should do the same with Novak. I mean, to me, unless the serve and volley is working or unless it's your bread and butter, like, if, if one of those two things are the case, then, all right, big moment. Go to what works, man. Go to what you're good at. Go to the play that has been effective. But if neither of those things are the case, and you have a, a, a guy with a set point in a pivotal, pivotal moment in the match, like, make him think. Just make him think is my perspective on this. Instead of allowing him to react and hit what is essentially a reflex return with a target. With a target down the line. Where there's no time to get tight. No time to get nervous. And uh, you're letting Alcaraz win the set with one swing of the racket. Is really what you're doing. Uh, but obviously the backhands were far more egregious. And the serve and volley to me is just a little bit questionable as well. The other mistake I have screenshots for. Uh, it comes in the fifth set. 
and I'm sorry, the, the, uh, color is a little bit dark. It's a little bit dim on this, but that's just how, how it goes. I didn't have time to brighten it. Um, this is a break point for Novak in the Love One game that I talked about. Just to refresh your memory real quick, this is the Love One game where Alcaraz, uh, where Novak makes every return and most of them are good returns. And Alcaraz just comes up with four winners, a couple of drop shots and, uh, you know, a great backhand volley and a great forehand down the line. And and I, I said during that game, because Alcaraz had to win five points to win the game, this is the one point where he did not hit a winner. This is a Novak mistake. And uh, that's why I wanted to save it until here. Uh, but it's also important to note that before the mistake comes some spectacular scrambling from Alcaraz. Lest we forget just how fast he is, just how well he covers the court. Um, Novak already has him on the run here, and Alcaraz goes down the line, which he was he was trying to be predictable when he was on the run on his forehand. He was trying not to go cross-court every time. But this time he goes down the line and it bleeds middle. And, and you know, he, he really should be toast here. When you're on the run like this and you go down the line and it's it's not a good down the line, that's that puts you in an awful spot. Cross court's open. Novak goes there. I mean, it could have been a little better, but frankly, it's good enough. I mean, look at Alcaraz's position. It, it's horrendous. He's got his entire back to the court. He's, you know, reaching behind his body to hit a defensive slice backhand. All right? Short ball. Djokovic approach shot. He's going to take it down the line. And again, he hits this really well. It's precise. Alcaraz ranges into the corner. He's in a, a similar position here where uh, he's hitting this kind of desperate slice backhand, but he knows Novak's at the net. So he knows instead of hitting it low and short, he's going to have to hit it high. So it's a defensive lob. And Djokovic looks to hit a forehand swing volley off of this. And kind of moving backwards, hitting the forehand drive volley from this position in the court. Uh, you know, he knows that Alcaraz is probably going to try to cover the cross court, which is the open court. And Djokovic tries to get cute and wrong foot Alcaraz. He goes down the line here and he does not make it. It hits the net. All right. I watched this over and over and over and over again. And I tried to really be fair about it. Should this have been an overhead? Or was Djokovic playing the right shot and it just didn't work out? And by the way, it was windy. I'll talk a little bit more about the wind later on. But but it was windy. And that obviously makes this a more difficult shot. But I watched it again and again. And at the end of the day, my opinion is it should have been an overhead. That this was an overhead. It's so interesting with Djokovic's overhead weakness because what I always call it the best weakness in the world. It is the best weakness maybe of all time. Because isn't it incredible to have a weakness that opponents, when if, let's say, looking to exploit it, would lose 90% of the points? Isn't that quite the amazing weakness? But the reality is throughout Novak's career, it's been very difficult to find 
matches, particularly big matches, where you can point to the overhead weakness, the lack of confidence in that shot, and say, hmm, it cost him. It really cost him. It's few and far between that you could find examples of that. But I think you can, after this point, Djokovic has won, uh, he's on a big stretch of games here. I think like six out of the last seven. And because, yeah, because I think he was down 3-2 in the third. He ends up winning, um, or, or maybe, let, let, me, let me fact check this just to get it right. But he's certainly broken Alcaraz's serve uh, three in a row here. If I go to the third set, sorry, the fourth set, um, I see Novak breaking at two all, which means, yeah, which means he won from there. He won five games. So he had won four out of the last five games. Um, and he's got break point here to make it five out of six. I still think I'm messing this up. I don't know why, but I'm just going to move on. Uh, the point is, it's break point to go up two love in the fifth set, and Novak has all the momentum, and he's got an overhead here. However you want to you know, slice it, he has an overhead to hit, and he tries to hit a very awkward and difficult forehand swinging volley where, where he's moving backwards, and he's not in the middle of the court, and it, it just needed to be an overhead. And that and the backhands are the two big mistakes that Novak made in the match that, that he, uh, he'll be regretting. By the way, Djokovic's direct quote on this shot, quote, it was very, very windy today. The wind kind of, yeah, took it to an awkward place where I couldn't hit the smash. I had to hit the drive volley kind of falling back. I saw him perfectly running to the opposite corner. I kind of wanted to wrong foot him with that drive volley, and I missed. Again, I read the quote. I watched it a bunch of times. I'm not buying it. I think a lot of players here, despite the wind, they're able to get under the ball. It was high enough, and they hit the overhead. Just a couple of things I want to talk about in general. One of the if I, if you're going to ask me what was the biggest gap in the fifth set and in the in the sets that Alcaraz won, uh, to me it's forehand firepower, and I just thought Novak's forehand needed to be a little bit better. And I thought Alcaraz's forehand, as I said in the preview, transcendent shot, red hot in the fifth set. There was a point in the fifth set where forehand winners were eight zero. And I also point to some key Djokovic forehand misses. One all, 30 all I talked about. Uh, his best chance to break Alcaraz's serve in the fifth set was in 3-2, was at 3-2. And he had 15-30, second return, miss hit a forehand, and missed the return. That was a bad miss on the forehand. 30 all, Novak hit a great return, got a forehand in the middle of the court on the next shot, and again, didn't hit it cleanly and missed the forehand. Really bad couple of points there 
on the Djokovic forehand. I'll also say that you probably remember this marathon game in the third set at um, at 3-1. Djokovic is serving at 1-3, and at the time, the deficit between the two is only one break of serve, and, Alcar and Djokovic is trying to keep it that way. Forehand was the reason why he couldn't get out of that game. I mean, yeah, like, he couldn't find the, the unreturned serves, but the way Alcaraz was returning, I, I put much more blame on the forehand. And I charted seven Djokovic forehand unforced errors in that game. And then ultimately, when Alcaraz got the break off of back-to-back -back forehand errors, by the way, that was it for, for the third set. That was it. Notebook dump. Um, I want to kind of talk about Djokovic big picture here, but before I do that, I, I want to just, again, get some stuff, some, some, it's, this is going to be a random assortment of thoughts here. All right. But, uh, I just, usually I try to have some cohesion. There are some things I just want to say and get it out there in kind of a random note order. So I'm going to call this the notebook dump. Uh, serve return trends were kind of big throughout the match. They went back and forth. And uh, Alcaraz, with his first serve location, I thought was very smart to hit only 32% of his first serves into the Djokovic backhand. Only 30 of Alcaraz's 94 first serves in play uh, went to the backhand third. Now, that doesn't include backhand body, but it's the backhand third of the court. And uh, that is the best way for Alcaraz to set up his forehand by going at Djokovic's forehand return. Both 6-1 sets were closer than they seem because in every single set, all of the games early on were tight. That was true about the first set. That was true about the third set. You look at the scoreboard and you look at 6-1, but really a lot of that was just one player winning a bunch of close games early on and then a bit of a, a letdown and an, an energy dump from the player who was kind of thinking about the next one. Early on, I thought Novak was uh, winning the serve return battle, much more stable on the second serve return in particular. And uh, a lot of forced errors by Novak using pace and depth. I almost was calling them ambiguous errors. There were so many balls that Novak hit in the first set that... They were deep, they were fast, but Alcaraz was there and he just wasn't making the ball. And it was kind of like, is that an unforced error? Was that a forced error? Kind of hard to classify, but ultimately we don't need to classify. We're not scorekeepers. I'm just going to say what it was. And it was a lot of down the line, pace and depth, kind of linear pace, rushing Alcaraz, as I thought, a uh, lot, lot of errors, a lot of reward for Djokovic from executing that. But Carlito started to absorb and get more solid. He started to realize that not every shot needs to be great. There was a recognition, a recognition eventually when uh, Djokovic was playing quality balls, Alcaraz started to make that, that calculation, that recognition of this is a good ball and... 
it's okay if I slow down my racket even just to make sure to get a clean hit on it and just make the ball. Accept neutrality. The, Alcaraz played so many more just rally balls after the first set. Just, all right, too good. Can't attack this ball. Let's just play it back. Rally ball. In the first set, it just it seemed like it was always, you know, every shot had uh, a little bit of risk built in, and it was it was hurting him because of Djokovic's depth. I think that was a big adjustment. So Alcaraz's rally tolerance rose, and his movement came into play much more often as a result. I also th thought we saw a much more backhand slice from Alcaraz uh, early on. He, he really wasn't using it much at all. And that played into just the, the same themes, working the point and creating opportunities and then using the firepower, but not using the firepower when it's not really available to be used. Something I noticed, and, and I want to kind of talk about the wind for a second here. Something I noticed during Roland Garros, Djokovic just doesn't like playing with the wind at his back. So just to visualize, and in this case, it was uh, where the TV cameras were near baseline. So when Novak was close closer to the, the TV angle uh, near baseline and the wind was going this way, that way. So Novak, uh, the ball that Alcaraz is hitting is kind of hitting a wall and slowing down. And the ball Djokovic is hitting is flying. It's kind of catching a wave. At Roland Garros, that was Novak's, it was windy every day in Paris. That was Novak's weaker side. And he ends up reaching for the ball a lot, like not getting his feet up to the ball. Which, you know, you, you, have to, you have to move forward a little bit. You have to expect that the ball is going to kind of die on you and adjust your footwork accordingly. But it, it's something, something about Novak setting up for particularly his forehand because uh, it doesn't happen as much on his backhand. He just can't seem to make that adjustment. And then what ends up happening, he slows down his forehand. It, it saps... It saps the speed. It saps the confidence on his forehand. I saw that a lot in this one. Uh, again, reminding me of Roland Garros. For Novak, I think, on, on that thread, early offense was a problem for him at times. You know, the free points completely dried up for the most part. And I don't think it would have been as much of a problem, but his forehand was just a little bit underpowered looking. And I was left with the impression that Novak next time, he's just going to be He's going to have to be more forceful offensively and less wind could definitely help that. But certainly I just didn't think there was enough all out, uh, particularly weight of shot, like all out baseline pace off of his forehand wing um, or, or at least ground stroke speed enough ground stroke speed off of his forehand wing uh, to really kind of get through Alcaraz once he started defending super well. Um, Novak did play well in the fourth set, got the break with some stifling returns very deep. Backhand down the line forced errors, which I, I thought was maybe his most 
his most productive shot, his backhand down the line, which again, I don't know that that's a good thing. Like you really want your forehand to be making, making you a lot of money on the court. Right. And I just didn't feel like that was happening. Uh, there were also some volley mistakes from Alcaraz in that fourth set break of serve that Novak got. Uh, but Djokovic, all in all, definitely got Carlitos uh, to defend more in the fourth set with some good uh, serve return dynamics, some very aggressive court positioning, and some uh, precision as well. So that's my notebook dump. I want to end with uh, just, just a silver lining, I think, for Novak Djokovic that I wanted to get in here. This was something that I was keeping in the back of my mind. Obviously, Novak, after winning the first two majors of the year, it was kind of like, let's take it step by step and see what 2023 can become. But had he won, like, let's go alternate universe here. He wins the calendar slam. This is where, for me, and I'm not saying I'm definitely right, but for me, I start to think 2024 might be the last time we see Novak Djokovic motivated. You know, you'd have the Olympics, but man, calendar slam this year would have changed a lot. It would have been, I just think it would have changed his whole outlook on, on his career. It would have been such a, a pinnacle moment. And look, the, I'm not saying it would have been a bad thing, but if, if you're asking me like, how would that have affected the future? My take is that some questions would have started to come up about the motivation. And all I'll say, if, if you're looking for a silver lining here, I think that this challenge should excite him. That it's not going to be difficult at all for Novak to uh, get back in the gym next week or knowing him maybe in two, three days, get back in the gym and, and think about what the next goal is, what it is that he is going for and chasing. When, when you have a guy who's playing at the level that Alcaraz is playing at and, and you know the competitive personality that Novak is, all I'm saying is motivationally, this'll help, this'll do, this'll get him going. This will light that fire. Because trust me, like, slam race in the books. You're not chasing Federer. You're not chasing Nadal. There, there does need to be a calibration in your head of what am I doing this for right now if you are a goal-oriented person. If you are. And I believe Novak is. So something had to kind of be there. And man, this... This'll do. So to me, if you're Novak, if you're a Novak fan, that is the silver lining. So uh, congratulations to Carlitos and his fans. What a match it was. Uh, very, very memorable, historic, epic, and a level of tennis that... A level of tennis that is uh, really exemplary when, when you take a look at just the range of things that he had to execute and was able to execute uh, against Djokovic in this five-set win. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time.
You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.